Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Okay, uh, today we're going to pick up with continuing with our study in Romans. Uh, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, would you please stand? I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 through 23. And at the end of this, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord because that's what we really believe. And this scripture is really going to beg the question, do we really believe this? And uh, this one, uh, if you do believe, we ask you to say this, uh, thanks be to God, after I say this is the word of the Lord. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chuck. Good morning. Um, thanks for being here. As, as John said, we're continuing in a series in the uh, book of Romans. And last week was really, I said Paul's thesis statement, um, that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation uh, from faith, from for faith, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and this week, he kind of gets into his argument. In the next few weeks, he's, he's driving from, from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3 to a verse where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he's going to talk about um, the gospel being the solution to the problem, but he's going to start by talking about the nature of the problem and, and about sin. And so he's going he's to go to great pains to define all in the next few weeks and what the problem is and how it works. And I'll start with humanity um, and then he'll go to the moralist and, then and the self-righteous, and then he's going to go um, to the Jewish people uh, specifically. And, and that's, it's maybe the hardest part of Romans. It's one of the hardest parts of the Bible, I think, for folks to accept. Um, and, and so it's interesting, because I, I don't think any of the any of us that are here on a week-to-week basis, you know, and I don't think most people in the world are going to deny that there's something radically wrong, you know, and we've fallen short of something, of what we should be as humans or as humanity, but then, but then we have great discrepancies about the standard that we've fallen short of, why it is that we've fallen short of that standard, whose fault it is that we've fallen short of it, and who should be held responsible for us falling short and the consequences that ensue from falling short of it. So if I, I'm just going to throw this out there and see what happens. But if you, if, 
if I were just to ask the question, like, what's wrong with the world? And if you peruse the headlines or, you know, whatever comes out on social media and tried to discern, like, what, what the world in general thinks is wrong with the world, what types of things would you throw out? Injustice? War? Tribalism? Excuse me? Boundaries. Fear. Selfishness and greed. Hmm. Misunderstanding. Stereotypes. All those things are wrong with the world. I think this is it. Like, we're all over the place. And what's like, there's a lot of things wrong with the world. Um, my favorite answer to that is I think if you ask people what's wrong with the world, they're going to say they, they are. Uh, <laughs> it's not me and it's not us. It's, I've got a little bit, but they are the real problem, you know. If you went on and, and said, are, we, are things, let me, I'll throw this one out there. Are things better than they used to be or worse than they used to be? <laughs> all right, all right, both. How did it get so bad? <laughs> Them? Um, yeah, how do we fix it? Yeah, we would say God and Jesus. What might, what might the, you know, the world outside the church that doesn't hold to the Christian faith, what might they say? Self-love? Yeah. Government? Yeah. Moved to Mars. Yeah. Need another planet. Kindness? Yeah. Yeah. Pardon me? Work? Work harder? Hmm. Yeah, if we all just agreed, then it, then it would solve the problem. So all those answers help <laughs> because Paul is going to speak into that and say, here's here is what God says is the problem, and he's going to move into the solution. And, and our answers are all over the place, and that's part of the problem. So God, God, or Paul starts with this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Someone pointed out late in the week reading the commentary that we would not start with wrath. When we're trying to, like, you know, encourage somebody towards faith in Christ, we start someplace else. <laughs> Paul's like, here's where we need to start. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness from men. And so he's pretty clear that sin is the problem and we're responsible. Um, so let me start by saying this. God has wrath towards sin, and that's great news. If you just kind of go out in the world and say God has wrath towards sin, is that great news? How is that received in the world? I think people like really bristle at the idea um, that God has wrath. Like God is supposed to be chill about everything and just kind of get over everything and let everything run off of his back. Uh, and so let me make this statement because I thought a lot about this this week. People get really angry at the idea of a God who is really angry. Right? Like people get indignant when you suggest that God might be indignant about what's going on down here. People get really mad that God is really mad. And the more I thought about that, the more ironic I found it, you know? <laughs> like, because we can get mad about everything, but God's not supposed to get mad about anything. One, one guy said it, that this is, 
how the world looks at this is that, that the idea of a God of wrath is a projection of the idea of the Victorian father, the stern father who ruled his children with a rod of iron, didn't allow them to do this and that. They quake and trembled when they saw him coming or heard his voice, and so people have transferred that onto God. Another person said that, um, that, relig- that religion is all based on fear and manipulation, and, so, and the idea of a God of wrath is a hangover from primitive religions. Um, and I, I just I disagree with that, and I think it makes perfect sense that God would be um, angry. So we are mad at stuff, like, all the time, right? Like, how many of you were mad this week? How many of you on a scale of 1 to 10 were mad in an 8 to 10 range this week? Okay, how many of you were mad this morning? All right. How many of you are mad right now? Uh, <laughs> like, we're, we're kind of overflowing with wrath. In, in America right now, and I think we feel well justified in our anger. So I frequently allude, and I did it last week a lot, to the number of TV shows and movies and books that have like a righteous anger and justice as the theme to them because they tap into something inside of us that longs for that sense of justified anger or wrath, and we want an outlet for it, and so our art will give a sense of it. And I think that's just a Part and parcel to us being angry. Um, I heard someone, I wrote, read someone say a couple, couple years ago that everyone drives differently when there's a cop behind them. And that's true, right? Uh, like, I haven't had a moving violation for years. I got a warning a couple years ago on Edenton Street, but it's been a long time, and now I'm going to get a ticket this week, but it, it's been a long time. But if a cop's behind you, you feel differently. But I thought about this, and now, like, everyone drives different because the guy next to you might have a gun. So road rage is like one of our outlets of wrath, because in road rage, you are the judge, jury, and executioner right there in your car, and there's no defense attorney because there's windows, and you can't see them, but now there, there might be a defense attorney, and he might have a gun, and so you're careful about like how you express that. Cancel culture is a desire for justice, you know, and so if you're, you know, culturally on the right, you think the problem is the people on the left, and, and wrath is well justified and necessary, and they had it coming. And if you're on the right, you think the problem is on the left, and wrath is well justified and necessary. And it seems like the only person that's not allowed to get angry is God. Unless he's getting angry at the same things I'm getting angry at. And then he can. Um... And, and yet, I think God is the, the, one that, the only one that's completely justified in his anger, and God is the one that, that handles his anger the best. So this is a verse from, from Exodus chapter 34. Um, this is when Moses, they're out in the desert, and, you know, it's a little touch and go out in the desert, and there's some wrath out in the desert. And Moses says to God at one point, hey, show me your glory. And Moses has been through a lot with the Lord, you know, and, and it seems like it's fair for him to ask that question. And God says, you know, basically, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle my glory. But I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over you, and you'll see my back as I pass before you. And God declares this about his nature. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so this is the God of the Old Testament, which is the version of God that that is often portrayed as the most angry. Like, that's how we look at the God of the Old Testament. It flies off the handle. But God himself says, hey, you guys have got this out of perspective. I am a God merciful and gracious. Like, I get mad a little, and that's all you guys see, but you don't see my mercy and my grace. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I keep steadfast love for thousands. I forgive iniquity and transgressions and sin. However, uh, 
I will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. He is slow to anger, but he's complete in his justice. Like God's the one that deals the best with his anger. Even in this passage in Romans, um, there's a couple words in Greek for wrath. One of them is thumos, which is kind of a flying off the handle. And there's, the other one is orge, which is like a, like a controlled, um, like a controlled, steady anger. So, and I thought about this. My kids, I think, have seen both from me. Um, kids will evoke wrath like few other things will evoke wrath in life. We have a few families that have um, just had babies. And so I've gone and visited them. And one of the things I'll try and just slide into conversation is like, oh man, you know, there's nothing like that baby's cry that can get you frustrated because there's nothing like an infant's cry that can make wrath. Like, you don't even know what that was in there because there's nothing you can do about a baby's cry. So maybe it's just me because I'm a control freak. But like, we're all control freaks, let's be honest. And so you can't fix it, you know what I mean? Uh, I'll remember, I'll never forget our first diaper bag had a tag on it, and it said, if your child is crying, and it, it said, one, when's the last time you fed your baby, because the baby might be hungry, and it said, two, you should check your baby's diaper and see if it needs to be changed, and it said, three, it is, does the baby feel warm, because the baby might be sick, and then it said, if, if it's none of these things, and you find yourself getting frustrated, place the baby in the crib and walk out of the room and close the door. <laughs> so it's like it knew me that in those moments of wrath, you just can't think straight. So you need someone to be like, there's only three things it could be. But in, in that moment, I can think of like one, maybe two of them, and it knows that, you know. And so that's like some thumos. And I think that's what people think about God. Like he's just flying off the handle, but that's not God. So orge is like a more controlled wrath. And as my kids got older and I got older, I think, I think this is what my kids sense for me, which is more like a, I compare parenting to driving. And so I felt like most of my parenting was driving a Sunday drive, like 25 miles an hour. Just, we're just cruising along because parents fun. I love my kids. I have great kids. But then there's times, and usually it's when I have to tell my kids what to do more than once or twice. Then I just start getting crazy. You know what I mean? And they're older, so they're better now. But there's just something in my kids that doesn't know how to put a dish in the dishwasher. So it's still there. It's still there. But, like, I would tell them when they were little. And, like, I didn't want them to clean parts of the house and tell them exactly what to do. And, and, but after I had to tell them twice, they'd be like, hey, guys, I'm starting to get a little frustrated. Like, we're still driving 25, but my foot is getting heavy, and I'm just letting you know. And the second warning would be like, I just told you that I'm getting frustrated. I don't know if you remember this, but when I get really frustrated, it's not pretty, you know? And then the third time, I'd be like, forget it, and I'd just punch the gas, and I'd go from 25 to 80. Am I wrong? So my kids are back there, like, um, and I think the worst of it was punching a wall, do you remember that? Abigail's nodding her head. Yeah. I didn't have a hole in the wall, but I did have a dent. I had to fix it. I felt bad about it. I apologized. We came back down, to, and I would come back down to 25 in a few minutes. Um, but, so it was under control, but justified. And so I'm not, I don't want to compare myself to be God. Don't take that very far, because I think that's a real false comparison. But I do feel like God's saying, hey, I'm, my wrath is under control, but the situation cannot keep going the way it's going and you're not fixing it, and you can't fix it, and I'm going to fix it, and that's going to involve, like, I'm not happy about the way things are going here, and he shouldn't be. 
And Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and, and the unrighteousness of men. And so ungodliness is a, is a vertical relationship, and unrighteousness, the word is, implies a, a, a horizontal relationship. And so it starts with our relationship with God. And we're created in the image of God to fill the earth with the glory of God. And so we're, we're made to be godly and to reflect that image. But when we, you know, when we rejected God, then we become ungodly. And so it starts with that relationship, and then it spreads to unrighteousness and our relationship with each other. Um, Genesis 2, the Lord God, you know, puts, puts Adam and Eve, puts, well, in this, at this point, Adam in a garden, and commanded the man, saying, you shall not, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And so this is what he says, like, when we fail to live things out the way that God created them, it will lead to death. It's not that we screwed things up, and then he's like, I'm going to kill those guys. That's not it. It's he told us beforehand, I'm God, you're not. If you start pretending you're God, it's just naturally going to lead to death. That's the way this goes, because you don't know what you're doing, and you're not God, and you can't have that job. Only I can have that job. And so we've taken God out of his proper place and in our hearts and replaced him with ourselves, and that's ungodliness, and it's, it's resulted in righteousness, and he's, he's not happy about that because he loves us. Um, when you see a child, and thankfully I've never really had a child in like a self-destruct mode. You know, we've had kids make bad decisions and stuff, but you see that, and it pains you, and it, like you love your child, but it pains you to see, like it can really be frustrating to see them making bad decisions. And especially when their bad decisions affect the other kids in your family or the people around you. Like there's a justified anger in the impact that our sin has on the people around us. And if God didn't have wrath against sin, it wouldn't show that, it wouldn't, I think I have this sentence wrong. Yeah, I wrote that wrong. If we didn't have wrath against sin, it wouldn't show that God loves us. It would show that he doesn't if he just lets us go. I'll say this next week. The most wrathful thing you can do to your kids is let them eat Pop-Tarts every day, all day. Is just let them have what they want. Like, as a parent, that's the most cynical, cynical, wrathful thing you could do is just let them keep making bad decisions without intervening or caring about it. Um, Our wrath when we get angry, is aimed at fixing things. And God's wrath is too. And for us to say that we can have wrath but God can't is a really arrogant thing to say and to put us in the place of God. But again, I think this is said all the time um, in our culture. Um, my, um, sorry. My, so my favorite wrath movie, we were flipping through the channels last night and my favorite wrath movie came out. And it's Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. So if you've never seen this, and that's okay, you probably shouldn't. But Man on Fire is about a, he's a bodyguard in Central America. And he's protecting this family. And the, and the daughter is this sweet, innocent little girl. And she gets kidnapped. And he gets shot during the kidnapping because he's watching her. And then the ransom drop goes bad. And they think that the girl is dead. And he gets out of the hospital and goes back to the house and runs into the mom. And the mom's like, what are you doing here? And he thinks she's mad at him because the daughter was taken. But she's not really. And he's like, I'm just back here, you know, picking up my stuff. And I can't find my Bible. And so he's looking for his Bible because he's painted, the, like they paint him as a righteous man. 
right? This is how we do it. Like, we're righteous, somebody else is unrighteous, and so our wrath is justified. But he's painted as a righteous man, and she's like, what are you going to do now? And he's like, I'm going to do what I do best. I'm going to kill everybody involved with this thing. And she says, she says, you kill them all. And then the music changes, like, bow, 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 bow. And it's like, yeah, let's go. Because it, it catches that thing in us that we know that, right? That's what we're after. And so he, um, he ends up, at one point, he, I'd forgotten this scene. He ends up, like, he needs to shoot a motorcade with a rocket launcher, so he needs to get in this apartment that's above the thing, and it's an older couple that's in there. He's like, I'm not here to hurt you. I just need your window. And the old guy looks at what he's going to do, and he says, the Bible says to forgive. And he says, forgiveness is between them and God. My job is to set up the meeting. <laughs> it's just a line, man. It's just a line. And he kills all these bad guys in a horrible way because there's no good in them, right? They're painted out as completely unrighteous. And at the end of the movie, he trades his life for the girl. He goes with the bad guys and the girl gets saved. He's a Christ figure. Like the gospel is all through our art. So we deny it like logically, but it's, we express it all the time, you know? And the problem with that is, I thought about this quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's a, who's a Russian dissident that was in the gulags in the, 19, in the 20th century. And he said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, this line shifts inside us. It oscillates over the years. Even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And that's the problem with the wrath of God, is that we know we deserve it. And so if we open up, that maybe it's there. <laughs> like, we're not sure what to do with it. And that's where Paul's going with the argument. And thank God he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he who knew no sin is going to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God and the grace of God fits in there. But that's the resistance to it. Okay, Paul goes on and says, by their un- who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And so, he- so here's his answer to what went wrong. Um, we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God showed it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. This is what Paul says. He's like step by step how it went wrong. God revealed himself to us clearly. We have a choice between rejecting or responding to the revelation of God. And he says we've rejected it. And again, this is, this is another piece of news that I think is a difficult piece of news um, to respond. So he revealed himself with his, his divine nature and his eternal power. Um, this has been, this is kind of hard for me because I am, I am by nature pretty skeptical. Like, I'm curious. I can overthink things. I ask a lot of questions. I think they're good questions. You know, I have a book, shelf, a shelf full of books on apologetics, which is the defending the faith um, to prove all this stuff. But he is saying, he's declaring Like, God has given you enough evidence on which to base your faith in him and to follow him. He's saying you don't need more evidence. Um, And and for someone like me, and I know a lot of you are probably in that camp, that cannot seem like that it corresponds with our reality. But I appreciate the fact that he's just declaring it. Um, The... So let me talk about the nature of faith for a second. The, The idea of blind faith is a fallacy, and I think that's another thing that, that people don't have faith will throw out. They're almost like a straw man, like, wow, faith is blind faith. I believe in fact, science, and stuff like that, but that's just not how it works. Um, our home group guys are slowly getting to the end of mere Christianity, and I, I forgot the chapters. They have, he's got two chapters at the end on faith, and 
In one of them, he talks about how he would not blame anybody for whom the weight of evidence seems to be, like, that you're going to follow the weight of evidence. All faith is based on evidence, um, but evidence and proof are two different things. And, and so you're, like, in these realms, you're not going to get proof, but you, you're absolutely going to get evidence. And his argument in that is, or what he's cautioning people towards, is to understand that you'll have a weight of evidence in the decision you make based on that, but your mood is going to work against that sometimes. So he became a Christian in his 30s, and he said, after I became a Christian, there were still days where my mood made it seem like this whole thing was totally improbable. And like, I think all of us that have been following Christ have had days where the thing seems totally improbable, and I think a lot of the Psalms are you know, the psalmist days where it seemed improbable and we had questions about it. And he said, that's fine. But understand the difference between the weight of the evidence and your mood. And he said, when I was an atheist, the same thing. I thought the weight of the evidence was here. But my mood sometimes said that it was, it was true. And so faith is going to work like that. And, there's, and, there's, and then that book is about good evidence on which to base your faith. So in terms of divine nature, I feel like Lewis starts in the first five chapters, and they're short chapters if you've never read it on, in Mere Christianity, on the divine nature and God's moral law, and that there's an ought to, and that there's a right and wrong, that we have a sense of right and wrong comes from God himself. Um, and I think that's what Paul is saying, like God's morality is one of those huge pieces of evidences that we shouldn't have an ought to if there's not a standard that we're appealing to that's outside of us and beyond us. Um, along with that, like now people debate the very idea of consciousness, like when we became aware as human beings and that we have personality as another evidence of the divine nature of God and the fact that we're made in his image. Um, and then when he talks about eternal power, um, and man, there's a gazillion ways that God has made his eternal power known to us. Um, so let me, let me geek out on a few of my favorites. Um, that are from my stack of apologetics books. This book, I a couple years ago, I recommended this a lot. I'm not quite down with the author at this point, but the book is still a great book. Um, it's called Miracles. He spends the first third really talking about science and like so many things out of science that just there's no explanation for how perfect they are. And then he talks about supernatural experiences. But maybe my favorite one, and I think this is evidence of God's eternal power, is he talks about the four fundamental forces of the universe. And so those are gravi gravity, the electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. So like gravity is gravity. The strong nuclear force holds the nucleus together of an atom. Weak force deals with radioactive decay, and the electromagnetic force holds atoms and molecules together. So he talks about how these things were established based on our current understanding within a millionth of a second after the Big Bang. They were established and they haven't changed and they're so perfectly tuned that if they were just slightly off, we, like, we wouldn't be here right now. So he says that um, the strong nuclear force, if it was 2% weaker, protons and neutrons couldn't stick together, giving us a universe of only hydrogen atoms, which doesn't work. So on the other hand, if the nuclear force were, strong nuclear force were 0.3% stronger, then protons and neutrons would stick together with such force that only heavy elements exist and there would be no hydrogen whatsoever and that wouldn't work either. And so it's perfectly tuned. And then he gets into a section about the ratio of these elements to each other and how important the ratio of the elements to each other is. And so he says about the ratio of the, um, of the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force, and he quotes a guy who 
is an atheist physicist, I think, or an agnostic, theoretic particle physicist Paul Davies. Oh, he didn't say anything about his faith. Davies calculated that if the ratio between them had been different by just one part in 10 to the 16th power, the universe as we know would not exist. Um, there's not, that's not good odds, right? Um, and then he goes on to the, the, the ratio of electromagnetic force to the gravitational force. And he says, physicists have calculated if that ratio had been different by one part in 10 to the 40th power, the universe wouldn't exist. So he goes into what 10 to the 40th power is, and he says, if you covered the continent of North America with dimes, and then you put another layer of dimes and dimes and dimes and dimes until you got to the moon, and then you found a billion continents the same size as North America and did the same thing, and then you painted one of those dimes red and just threw it in there and blindfolded your buddy, 10 to the, to the 40th power is the odds that they would find the painted dime. And so, and this isn't just him, like, this is, in the hard sciences is where you're least likely to find an atheist, because the numbers don't work out. Um, there's a, a British guy named Sir Fred Hoyle, and so he quotes him, he says, to, to Hoyle, an atheist, the notion that this perfect fine-tuning had just happened was statistically quite impossible. He later admitted that it was this discovery of these extraordinarily fine-tuned levels and what he saw as the overwhelming implication of a guiding intelligence behind him that more than anything else had greatly shaken him and his atheism. He later wrote, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There's stuff like that just all over in it, you know? And that guy's, like, I don't know what's going on in Sir Fred Hoyle's heart, or I'm not sure if he's still around, like what was going around, but it, it does seem like he's suppressing a truth that there is an eternal power that's monkeyed with these physics that he should respond to, but he's not. And that's the argument that Paul is making. He's given us enough evidence. Um, I'll briefly, this is an old book. I got this book in high school. And there's, there's one thing he talks about, that when a baby, so when a baby is in utero, it doesn't need to oxygenate its blood because its mother is oxygenating its blood for it, but the heart needs to work differently. And I forget how he puts this, but there's a hole someplace in the heart and the pulmonary artery doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. And so when a baby is born, Due to, like, the first one, due to pressure forces that they don't quite understand, there's two flaps that close the hole in between different parts of the heart so that the oxygenated and unoxygenated blood don't, don't go into places that they're not supposed to go to. And sometimes that goes wrong, you know, and they got to fix it. And then there's a muscle that contracts one time that opens up the pulmonary artery and makes things work, and then it atrophies. Now, I don't know. It just seems like there's all sorts of things like that where it seems like God has said, and I don't want to put, have you ever heard of the God in the gaps argument? This is going to tell me who geeks out like I do on this stuff, because the God in the gaps argument is where people are like, well, if you just say that God is responsible for anything that you don't understand, then you put God in the gaps, and once you understand that, like then, like God is minimized. But I think people put science in the gaps all the time, and have all sorts of faith in science that it's going to answer every single question. 
Um, when science changes its mind all the time, and I'm a big fan of science. I think we only have science because God created an orderly universe. But God has made himself, and this is what Paul is declaring, obvious in his divine nature and his eternal power. Um, again, I'm, I'm sympathetic to this. I go to the youth group. I try and do this once a year and ask the leaders to give them note cards and have them write out questions that they have and pass them into me. And I just try and respond to the questions. A, to tell them, like, well, A, to tell them, you should have questions. I'll tell them this. If you don't have questions, you're not thinking about this stuff much because there's a lot of questions to have, you know? Um, B, like, it's okay to have questions. Like, ask the questions, you know? Let's work it out. And C, like, all the questions don't get worked out. I don't have answers to all the questions. And just to project to them, um, that's okay. I heard a pastor say years ago, don't let the unexplainable get in the way of the undeniable. I think that's part of what Paul's saying. Don't let the unexplainable get in the way of the undeniable. And God has given us some undeniable. And there's a lot of unexplainable because he's God and we're not. But like, respond to that which he's made undeniable. Uh, I heard a sermon years ago on, on Jesus saying to, uh, he says, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, for of the and those are two cities up in Galilee where he did his early ministry. For if the miracles, the signs done unto you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. And the pastor pointed out, like, Jesus is saying the evidence isn't the problem. Great signs were done in those cities, but they didn't respond. And Jesus is saying you should have. And, and I think that's what Paul is saying. The evidence isn't the problem. There's something else beneath it that is the problem. And so if you're one that struggles with that stuff, like I am super sympathetic, like let's sit down and talk that out. But he is saying something to you. Like I, he's saying, I've given you the evidence and you got to look beneath that. Um, there's an apologist that I send out his podcast now and again, Frank Turek. It's the Cross-Examined Podcast. And at the beginning of each one, he just has some stuff from talks that he's given. And one of them is he's with some college students and he says, he says if someone says to you, there is no truth, how do you respond to that? And his answer is, is that true? Because people are saying there is no truth, which is a truth statement. And he's like, call them on it, because they don't realize what they're doing. And that is like, deny, like it's a way of denying, it's a way of denying the truth, the suppression of the truth. And I realized years ago that to every question I have, there's gonna, like, there's gonna be a Christian response to that question, and there's gonna be like a non-Christian or a secular response to that question. And, um, in real, and both of them are based on faith. One of, the, one of the best things about this book that's I recommended for a long time is that um, he starts with, with commonly held cultural beliefs that are going to work against faith, and he gets underneath them and says they, they, they're presented as fact, but really they're faith-based assumptions, and their, their evidence isn't as good as the, as the, as the Christian um, responses or the basis for the Christian faith, and he ends up saying, doubt, doubt your doubts, and realize that everything's based on faith, and faith in, in, in a lot of ways is a choice um, to act based on the evidence that God has given you. So, Paul, like that's, that's where he starts. God revealed himself to us, and we have a choice in how we respond to that. And so I, I'll finish that section by just repeating that. Don't let the unexplainable get in the way of the undeniable um, because he's given us what we need. He's given us what we need.
And Paul goes on to say, so they're without excuse. So although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so he says, this, this is the fork in the road, like how we respond to the ways that God has revealed himself to us. And rejecting God's revelation will lead to futile thinking and darkened hearts and false worship. And um, next week's passage goes a lot more into this, really. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But if you take God out of our thinking about the way the world works, if you take the key piece out of it, then, of course, your thinking is going to become futile because you're, you're missing a key piece to it, you know? Um, and then he talks about darkened hearts. And uh, when we look to things other than God to satisfy the longings of our heart, like, I think that is the darkening of our hearts and, and ends up with false, with worshiping things other than God. Uh, worship is where we, where we, like, we elevate the thing that is, is worthy of our honor and being elevated, but really what we're, like, we're, look, we're elevating the thing that we think gives us life and gives us meaning and, and put it in a place where we want to receive that um, from it. And so God is the only thing that's worthy of our worship. It's the only thing that was going to be able to satisfy our um, longings. And so we, we elevate God and I said this last week, the hard part about that is that when we elevate God and we put God in control, then we're out of control. And um, I think I compared it to the, um, the Roadrunner cartoon where the coyote would chase him and the Roadrunner would stop at the edge of the cliff and the coyote would, like, there'd be a cloud of dust and then the coyote would come off and realize there's nothing underneath him. And that's how grace feels sometimes. Like, we want grace plus law because we still have some control. Or grace then law because we still have control. But in reality, the gospel is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Which feels like you're out of control, which is true. And he's completely in control. And that's part of the reason that what we tend to do is worship something else. That, that we think it's in control, but really we're in control. So we put something else in the position where it can give us life. And it can give us meaning. And then there's a million things, money or beauty or security or status or pleasure that we put in that place. And that's a darkened heart. And that's futile thinking. And that's false worship. Um, and ultimately, like, it's putting ourselves, we can control those things. So we put them in that place. We end up being gods in that situation and elevating the things that we think will satisfy. And, and again, like next week, he goes further and further into this, but it made me think of John chapter 3, where John writes, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And I think Paul is on the same page with John as he says this. That's a hard thing to say. And honestly, there's parts of, of my heart that love darkness more than light, you know? And when last week, as Luther said, all of life is repentance because there's parts of our hearts that love darkness rather than light and it's worth being, it's repenting of. But this is, this is how things have gotten the way that they are. Um, C.S. Lewis at one point says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. 
And that is futile thinking, darkened hearts, and false worship. And so finally, with this passage, responding to God's revelation leads to honor and gratitude. And, and so when we respond the right way, that's, that's the result will be that we honor, we put God in the place that only God deserves to be and we worship him. Um, and gratitude is that recognition that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Like God is the one that has given us um, the things that we need and God is the one that can satisfy and the gifts that we sometimes worship instead of the giver, like we get beyond those to the giver that gave us the gifts and relinquish control to him. And, and again, I think we have both those things in our heart and sanctification is is starting at the place of acknowledging your culpability for the darkened heart and the futile thinking and the false worship and repenting from that and admitting that God is right and then we're wrong. And then he starts the process of moving us from that towards honor and gratitude um, and, and, and conforming us to the image of his son, and that's the process of sanctification. I'm going to um, wrap this up, and I'm going to ask the band to come back up and and go back to one of the things that when I, was, when I talked about the wrath of God earlier and when I was just kind of looking up how our culture talks about the wrath of God, one of the, one of the biggest things that come up is the argument that, of cosmic child abuse. And people really resist the idea that God would have to send his son to die on a cross for us in order to forgive us. He could just forgive us. Um, and, I, I mean, I guess I can see how people would say that. I, I, think, that, I think it's not thinking through it super deeply, which maybe isn't fair to people, um, but it misses a few things. One, Jesus chose to go to the cross for us. Uh, in John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Like Jesus chose to put himself in our place because he loved us. And two, I think this is what people miss. Sin always has a price and the price always gets paid. And so telling God, like, you shouldn't be mad, just deal with it, is so radically unfair to God. And not acknowledging that God is the one who created all this, and God is the one that we owe allegiance to, and God is the one that feels the pain and the suffering of the least of these in this world. And it just doesn't take much. When someone tells you to forgive, like, you take the price. Forgiveness is, is that act of saying, I'm not going to make them pay. I'm going to pay. And so when someone cuts you off, like in traffic, that's not a big deal, right? Like making them pay might be running them off the road. That's a bad idea. So you take a little bit of pain because they made a mistake. Shoot, if, if you were to lose a child to a drunk driver and someone says, just forgive them, just let it go, like that doesn't work, right? If you're in the Ukraine right now and your country's been invaded and you're... like your women have been brutalized and you've got relatives buried in a mass grave and someone says, just get over it. That's just not getting it. And we shouldn't pretend that we understand the way that God feels about these things. God's heart is rightly broken and rightly angry about what's going on down here. And Paul's going to keep going forward to the gospel that puts it back together. Um, and so when someone tells you to forgive, like, that's not, you don't forgive by your power. You forgive because you've been forgiven. We don't have the power to take that pain. 
The only reason we can take that pain is because the pain we've inflicted has been taken by the only one that can take it, which is the Lord. And so we're going we're gonna to take communion here, and um, this is what Jesus told us to do in remembrance of him, and it's his body that's been broken for us and his blood that's been poured out for us and what we need to remember on a regular basis. And before you do that, this morning, I guess I'd ask you to close your eyes and, um, and bow your heads. And, and maybe there are some things like you need to confess. There are some things that you know God has forgiven you of. And you need to remind yourself of the gospel in a really practical, in a really practical way. And, and maybe there are some, some places where you need to forgive and you've been resisting passing that forgiveness on to the people around you. And so I just encourage you to let God do his work in your heart this morning. Father, this is a hard word, and I'm glad you start there. I pray that you would help us to um, not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to surrender our thinking to you and to understand things the way that you understand them, Lord. And that we could be grateful um, that you are a God who is angry at sin, Lord. And that is a scary proposition to us who are sinners, Lord. But thankfully, you are abounding in loving kindness. And we know that above all because you sent your son to die on a cross for us, Lord, and to restore us to relationship with yourself. So God, we are grateful and we honor you this morning. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.